what's going on. Old films, Mr. Spencer. Classics, you might say. I've saved them for years, bits of them. We used to run them like this in the old days, but not for years we haven't done it. Now it seems like old times once more. Here is a motion picture film. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Film Swap. My name is David Seeley, and this is my esteemed co-host, the ecstatic gaucho himself, Mr. Jonathan Pritchard Barrett. John, how are you doing? I'm well. Thank you very much, David. How are you? Yeah, you know, I'm all right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good. So, uh... Today, uh, listeners, is a very, very super special episode because we have an extra super special guest on the show tonight. Jonathan, would you like to introduce? Yes, well, we have our second guest on FilmSwap and our first guest from the United States, and that is Amelia Eichler. Yay! Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Amelia Eichler. Um, Hello, Amelia. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Well, you're also known as uh, the mistress of the reel, and you work as the assistant theater manager at the USC Projection Services. That's, I think, the University of Southern California. Would that be right? Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yep. And um, so you live in uh, LA, Los Angeles? Yeah, I live in Los Angeles. And um, you work in a genuine cinema? I do. We actually have several theaters. We have about five theaters that I run around and manage. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. I suppose it's, I mean, I guess it's a large university. It's one of the biggest film schools in the country. So that's why we have a lot of different theaters and we have a lot of Uh, students. So. uh, Okay. Yeah. And they've got some famous alumni. uh, Oh, sorry, Jonah. Uh, I was just going to ask what the what the kind of uh, what sorts of films do you show? Are they for the students, or are they open to the for public to come in and see? We actually do both. So our main job description is to maintain and run films for the 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 film school, so for classes and academic events. But then we also have people who program. I guess you could call them special events, where it's open to the public. It's free. And so uh, you just have to reserve, and it's usually mostly new releases that come out in the U.S. or international. So it's actually really fun and good for the students. Definitely, terrific. That sounds like you might you must see loads of interesting and sort of little seen films. Yeah, also films I might never have seen otherwise. You know, because it is yeah. a lot of we surprisingly we screen a lot of international films, which. I'm actually really happy about because, as we'll talk about later, sometimes there's issues accessing international cinema in the U.S. Hmm. Well, I think sort of everywhere. Well, not everywhere, maybe, but yeah. so in the in Britain as well, we do have a definitely have our issues. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Joe, there's been a couple of times when we've had some issues. We've we've decided on films that we're going to swap on an episode and then for whatever reason, uh, one of us will have some kind of an issue accessing it uh, because the streaming services in the UK, there's really only a few. Uh, mm-hmm. and obviously, the big hitters like Amazon and um, uh, Disney and um What's the other one? Netflix. Netflix. Sorry, I couldn't yeah. think of it. Uh, Netflix. Uh, but their their um, selection of films, at least in the UK, is pretty pretty dire. And it's like anything that's older than ten years old, you definitely usually will have a hard time trying to come across it. Uh, and we do have a couple of smaller uh, streaming services. The BFI runs the BFI player. Uh, Movies quite good for seeing newer sort of foreign films and. Yeah. Uh, and then Arrow Video has a streaming service as well, which is really good for sort of cult oh, films yeah. and things like that. But uh, basically, that's pretty much it <laughs> in the UK. Yeah. So streaming is 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 not always uh, great for for sort of hardcore cinema buffs who really want to see uh, things and get hold of really obscure titles and things. It can be a bit of a challenge mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. So, well, why don't we uh, start today? We obviously, we're going to do a film swab and we're going to talk to Amelia a little bit about, because Amelia, I, uh, I I found you on Twitter basically because I noticed, aside from you did a couple of really great posts about, uh, some. sometimes you post pictures when in your in your cinema, you get deliveries of the film canisters with all the, oh, yeah. all the prints in them. And you post these great pictures of you standing amidst, you know, uh, you know, the Seven Samurai or, you know, mm-hmm. some Fellini film or something. And you say, look, here's the, here's the, here's the prints that is shown up. And so those were quite cool and they kind of caught my attention. But then I noticed you also wrote a really great thesis, uh, um, I guess, a few years ago that yeah. uh, w- was to do with um, kind of the uh, the dangers of losing physical media and the the, the kind of dangers to preservation and access that uh, that streaming, uh, the rise of streaming services and things is actually uh, potentially has to to um, for people to access films, and uh, and also you you work a lot. I think you said you mentioned that you collect some film prints and things yourself, and you mm-hmm. have uh, have uh, quite an interest in preservation and stuff. So I thought it'd be interesting just to get some of your observations on that as well. Yeah, um, I love bringing the the projection, physical media side to a lot of conversations, especially projection, because I feel like, which makes sense when you're talking about films and analyzing yeah. them and discussing them historically, you know, you don't really bring up, people don't really bring up projectors or how the film might have been shown in a theater. But I do think that's a really interesting and something I've gotten into, you know, the past few years, a more interesting look at like, the history of film and how film has evolved and maybe the pros and cons of each new technology that can affect mm. how we view and see films. Mm. Is it fair to say there's there's kind of a new generation that's coming up that won't ever actually know film as, as we knew it? You know, um, like I'm old enough, like I could show you here. I found this the other day when I was rooting through some boxes trying to find something else that this is a film that I made years ago yeah, on 16 millimeter film. And mm-hmm. so I can remember back in the days of actually, you know, splicing and 
and you know yeah. hanging things up and and all that kind of stuff and now of course i do everything here on my computer and it is all very much easier and you have uh, so many tools and things that you can use but yeah. there is it, it is quite different the the experience of like actually physically working with with something as well isn't it it's yeah, kind of I a think different also, it's very dependent on where you live i mean you know especially in the us i can't speak for the uk obviously um but you know if you're in a smaller town you have less access to physical media or you know seeing film on film and so i was just i just happened to be born in portland oregon which i consider you know the maybe third fourth best film like film city in the country so i think that had a lot to do with how i was able to access these things and i just happened to be born into a family where I have film buff uh, family members. And so that also contributed. But I think, yeah, as we move more and more into technology, like complex technology, you know, with AI and all that, there are people who are going to be less interested in accessing kind of these more obscure ways of viewing and seeing film. And I mean, in college, when I went to college at Portland State University, you know, they didn't really talk about physical film. You know, that's one page in a chapter about the history of cinema, but it's not something that's dealt, you know, we don't dwell on it or we don't talk about it in depth. So I think that I'm trying to do the opposite where I'm trying to make it more accessible get people more interested, especially people who've never seen a film projector or physical film at all. Just even having them touch it for, you know, like five seconds, it just, I'm hoping that'll spark something in people, especially who are younger than me. So I was wondering what uh, you thought is the sort of difference in quality between a sort of real projected film compared Mm -hmm. to a sort of uh, digitally, uh, I don't know, digitally projected projected film you know they're both depending I don't see a lot you know we don't at my job we don't have 4k projectors or anything like that we mostly have 2k but you know and I'm sure I've seen 4k films be projected many times but 35 is especially 35 it's up there I mean it's comparable to digital yeah. And, you know, obviously it depends on how beat up the print is or, you know, what how new it is. But yeah. to me, it's about it's just there's just something about seeing it on film. It's like has character. You know, you can see just like that it's real, that it's something you can touch and reach out to. And digital is, you know, behind all these servers and computer files and it's just a little bit less accessible or like something I can prove that's real if that makes yeah. sense yeah. I, I quite the, the when you watch a lot of newer films on, on blu-ray uh, and uh, you know in 4k and things like that and on streaming there's this real especially Disney's kind of the worst offender they have a real oh, yeah. tendency with their older films to just scrub them to within an inch of their life and really make sure there isn't even the slightest bit of blemish and they alter the whole look and feel of them. But I quite, quite like uh, seeing a few scratches and a few pops and the real change little dot pop Mm. up in the corner and things like that. Because to me, like you say, that kind of gives a little bit of character 
and that feel of, of um, experiencing it in the cinema, even if you're watching it at home. You know, yeah, I really uh, wish they would stop sometimes removing changeover cues from discs. Mm. I mean, I, I understand they want to clean it up and they don't want a bunch of scratches and they want to make it the highest quality presentation possible. But I don't know, there's something comforting to me about seeing the cues, especially if I don't like the film. Then I at mm. least know maybe the film's almost o- <laughs> over. Yeah. Depending <laughs> on how many cues I've seen. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I didn't know anything about them until I watched uh, the Fight Club, where it becomes part of the sort of plot. And yeah. then I remember, I guess Fight Club came out about 99, 2000, and when they were, the films were still on film. And mm-hmm. I remember it was a great thrill after that. Whenever I went to the cinema, I could you know, spot the... <laughs> and all that sort of stuff, which I'd never... I, mean, I must have gone to hundreds of films before then, but never... <laughs> notice them for some reason once you notice them it's hard to unnotice them which is funny (laughs) yeah yeah but it is it is all part of the charm and the experience of it i think well what do you think about the the fact that because i know uh, at the time i like in the 80s when the the big home video boom started and first it was with vhs and beta tapes and things and then it moved on to dvd uh, but there became over those decades, kind of the 80s and 90s, it was a real, real uh, sort of uh, uh, huge interest that swelled up uh, mm-hmm. for people for old films and just uh, just collecting films and uh, learning about films. If people had certain favorite actors or directors, they could go and collect up their whole you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, back catalog of things. And it really sort of uh, uh, instilled a real interest in film. Um, but now with the streaming, because they seem to very much be averse to showing any black and white uh, titles, and they seem mm-hmm. to only stick to the really sort of really well-known popular classics. So it's very easy to see The Godfather and Saturday Night Fever and Grease and maybe one or two other things, but and they kind of call those classics, which I suppose they are. Um, yeah. But, but they don't really dig deep into the catalog. So do you think there's a real danger that uh, as, as things progress this way, that a younger generation might not have that same interest in learning about older films and having, and they won't have access to them in the same way? And that there's a real yeah. danger that that the interest will start to wane very much so. Well, you know, it's interesting because obviously, I, I, as I say a lot of times, there's pros and cons every time there's a new technology. I mean, like you said, with VHS, you know, that allowed at least for people to revisit a lot of films that they may have forgotten about or discover a lot of new titles. But, you know, a lot of films get lost every time we go to a new format because not every, you know, it's a lot of it has to also do with money. You know, a lot of studios only want to put out what they see is going to sell. So this obscure title from, you know, the 30s or 40s, that may not be something they're willing to spend the money to put on, Mm. you know, either tape, disc, laser disc. You know, they might just say, oh, we can skip that one and put The Godfather because that'll sell. But yeah, yeah, I think that 
the positive outlook on streaming was that, oh, well, people can curate it and people can, you know, a uh, movie does that sometimes. They do curations or retrospectives or, but like we see, it gets, things get removed. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, it's all algorithm. So it's pushing things that they think they want you to see. You know, yeah. Or things but not that they necessarily. Think- you know, something that is obscure or it's usually well-known. Yeah. So, and the, the thing is, if you watch, a, you know, a film with Chris Pratt going around shooting guys, then they're going to keep putting up more films at you with Chris Pratt shooting guys. You know, yeah. that's the way those algorithms work. They just basically say, well, they like that. So they'll like this and they'll like this. But what it doesn't uh, entice you to do is actually explore and look and dig deeper and try and to maybe check out something that maybe you might not have thought about seeing, you know, or yeah. maybe, you know, a film that doesn't have Chris, Chris Pratt shooting guys in it. So it's like though those are the kind of uh, the dangers of it I, I can see that, yeah. uh, that it narrows people's uh, focus to such an extent that they they don't. Um, discover what's on the peripherals or underneath or, or dig a bit deeper. So, yeah. And I think that there's so many streaming services now and there's so many, I mean, especially this, the studios that have decided to have a streaming service and then start turning out their own content. Mm. It just, there's no way to not get decision fatigue. And I mean, mm-hmm. I've had it and other people have had it where you just look at all these titles and then you end up not watching anything. You, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I've actually had evenings where I, I can sit down with my partner and we'll look at, at uh, the scroll through these lists of things. And we, by the time we actually have decided to pick on something and say, okay, let's watch that. It's sort of like, oh, it's, been, it's bedtime. <laughs> it's time to, yeah. to shut it off because you've spent yeah. the last hour and a half instead of actually watching something. You've you've spent your time just sifting through this and these endless thumbnails. Yeah, so. definitely, I've done that too. It's ridiculous, yeah. absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, well, I think um, so. it's also that unfortunate because I do see how streaming can allow people to see a lot of things that have been restored you know they'll put out 2k 4k you know Mm. the newest release but again it is usually only going to be titles that are popular already you know it's like another re-release of this big title you know and i've already seen the godfather so i don't know if i necessarily need to see it in 4k now from the street you know Mm. it's like also people, and I've experienced this working at a theater, and it makes sense. People are sometimes more comfortable with what they're familiar with. And so mm-hmm. there are a lot of people see it as a, um, you know, a time issue of, well, if I invest this time in this new film that I don't know anything about, I may not like it. Maybe it's a waste of time. You know, it's, you start overthinking it too. And People sometimes just like to watch the same film that they've seen because they know it's going to be good. And so I think sometimes mm. the streaming service re- streaming services reinforces that a little bit to stick yeah. with what you already know as opposed to exploring more. 
Well, yeah, businesses tend to, um, by their nature, be risk averse, and they're not yeah. usually like. Uh, and you can see that phenomenon now, like um, on Disney Plus, so many remakes. They seem to be in this cycle now of remaking all their classic animated films as yeah. live action films, although they're ma mainly computer cartoons still. Anyway, but yeah. but the point being that they seem completely more comfortable just. Uh, using something that has that brand familiarity uh, yeah. rather than try something new and different that people haven't seen before. So yeah. that becomes the danger that you end up just losing that creativity and that sort of, um, you know, um, ability to try and reach out and try something a bit different. Uh, yeah. So, so that is a, another side effect of that. And I think the, the, the one thing that, because obviously Jonathan and I, uh, especially, are, are, you know, because we're old timers and I've, like I say, I've been collecting uh, videos and things. And it's absolutely true that the presentation, the quality of the presentation at home has increased dramatically from the days when I was sort of a teenager and we used to love, watch fuzzy you know, VHS tapes with the tracking errors and the, the, the scanned and panned pictures and uh you know the you know and now yeah yeah some of these 4k and i, I do have the 4k godfather the new one and it is mm -hmm. beautiful uh, you know uh stunning to see it that we have these big large flat screen tvs and the mm -hmm. resolution and the, everything is so amazing and we've come such a long way but you're right at the same time there is that uh because there's so much sort of capital tied up in that stuff that people don't want to um, take any risks or try something different. So um, you talked a bit about the collecting over the years, because I know in your thesis, you have a, a, you, you have a great uh, sort of history of people collecting film at home, in the home. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago in one of the, one of our previous episodes about how we have this phenomenon now because the streaming services have uh, become so popular and so convenient for people. Uh, and when there's a new technology that comes out, people just have this tendency to just sort of throw the old stuff out and just say, oh, I don't need that anymore because I got this now and it's much better. Yeah. But then sometimes you can end up sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, don't you? Because you literally will throw away all that stuff. And then all of a sudden you, you realize that, oh, I, I used to have a copy of that film. I fancy watching it. And look, it's not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon. It's not, you know. So what what would you say um, are the 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 dangers in terms of losing on our on our kind of history and our heritage a little bit when people just sort of discard the old for in favor of the new technologies you know at work we've experienced this and i i know that it's happened with other forms of media like a lot of people threw out their vinyl records and now all of a sudden vinyl is back and now I did that. You know, I was one of them. Yeah, <laughs> I have my. I I bought a record player and I still have it. I've never thrown out any of my, you know, records unless I decided that I don't want to listen to them anymore or I don't enjoy the band as much anymore. But yeah, I wish people weren't so ready to throw out everything just because something new comes along because. Mm. 
usually that frenzy dies down and then you realize, like you said, you realize, you know, once the dust settles, oh, wait, I actually needed to access that in the future. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, so I understand in the moment throwing everything out and just what's the next best thing. But, you know, I tend to keep most of what I have just because I know with streaming, it's not always going to be available. And if it's something I enjoy watching, then why would I get rid of it? You know, um, if it's if it's not broken, don't fix it. I mean, that's my that's I mean, I've had the same VCR since I was before I was born. My mom bought a VCR and I still use it. Um, you know, it's more than 26 years old now and it still works wow. that's amazing, and it's still reliable. It? So Perfect. I've you know, will not throw it out anytime soon, will not be throwing out my VHS tapes. And like I said before, you know, a lot of things don't get moved on to the next, you know, there's a bunch of probably films that were on DVD or Blu-ray that aren't making it to streaming. So that's another reason why you shouldn't just be ready to throw out everything and say, well, I can access it on streaming. It's you know, I would have to, I would recommend doing a deep dive of what's on streaming that you already own. But also at the same time, even if it's on there right now, it may not be on there in the future. Definitely. So I think it is important to, you know, obviously if you're not going to watch something anymore, you don't like it anymore. You don't have to keep, you don't have to keep it. Mm. But for things that you do get a lot of, you know, playability out of, you should definitely keep it if you have it on any other physical media or if you have a digital file of something you should definitely never get rid of it as well yeah it also brings up that interesting point that a lot of times people end up kind of now they're paying a monthly subscription for things that they may have already had because they might have already had a little selection of disney animated films on their shelf on DVD or Blu-ray already. And then they say, oh, well, I got Disney Plus now, so I'll just get rid of all these. It's cluttering up my house. Let's get these out. Yeah. But th- but then actually, well, but you already had those and now you're paying for them again. <laughs> and if you yeah. stop paying, you're going to lose them again. You know, so it's kind was, of like this interesting side of it as well. When there's only Netflix, you know, when the competition wasn't, there wasn't really any competition for streaming, you know, there was Netflix and some other maybe more indie streaming services, it was easier to just subscribe to that one service and then keep your physical media because there maybe was a few titles you wanted on Netflix. But then once everyone kind of moved over to just relying on streaming and then all this competition started popping up and still continues to pop up, you know, people are starting streaming services all over the place. Um, It's not one cohesive library, you know, there isn't one streaming service that owns everything. So now you're splitting up all your money to different services. I mean, of course, if you compare a cable bill, it's probably not as high as a cable bill would be, but yet it's, yeah. it's still a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of money now, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why if, you know, I would recommend keeping, and curating your own library, if possible. I know it's not always feasible, especially space-wise, but, and then just being able to subscribe to one service you really like and know you're going to use. I feel like that's a better bang for your buck and also something that's 
easier to maintain. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But um <laughs> but something that's happened at work is that you know, everyone throughout the film not everyone, because we still have film projectors at work, obviously. Um yeah. but a lot of the film projectors were taken out, you know, scrapped. And we didn't have a lot of 16 millimeter, which is mostly what's used in school, 16 millimeter. Um, and then 35 if we're doing like a special feature event. But yeah. all of a sudden, you know, as things started coming back after the pandemic, people were asking, oh, I'd like to see this on 16. And then, you know, I was like, okay, let me just magically pull out a 16 millimeter projector. You know, I mean, okay, now you want 16 because before no one wanted 16. So people decided to throw everything out and now you want 16, but now we have to go find all this equipment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it happens at big institutions as well. They're finding out, oh, wait, probably should have kept all this equipment that we're now throwing out. Yeah. yeah. I think they had a similar thing when uh, sort of, they started digitizing books. Lots yeah. of libraries started sort of thinking, okay, well, we can sort of get rid of all those paper books. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, yeah, but then there's, there's issues with that, basically. Yeah. I was going to ask about the, the that kind of relationship between uh, preservation and sort of uh, collecting. Because as we say, when these new technologies develop and everybody throws everything away, there are these few sort of people like myself, as you could see, who just sort of hoard things, uh, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, psychologically, that I kind of like to collect and, and curate mm-hmm. my own little library and have things that I'm interested in and keep them to hand. But over the years, a lot of really uh, classic films, uh, we were talking a few um, few weeks ago about silent films and the fact oh, yeah. that so, so many you know, a huge, huge percentage of all silent film has been lost forever just through, uh, very, you know, decay by things being thrown away because they didn't weren't seen to have any value anymore uh, because of the changes in technology and things, just things over the years. So much uh, history has been lost, but a lot of things have been saved just through the... Uh, um, through collectors over the years, yeah. people who saved those show at home 16 millimeter prints, or they, you know, uh, uh, collectors who who would go into garbage uh, uh, scowls and, and take out prints that uh, film studios or cinemas had thrown away and they took them and hoarded them in their basements and are in their cellars mm-hmm. and things. And it's only because they did that that there are some examples of really famous classic films that only still exist at all yeah. uh, because of that. So what what are your kind of thoughts on that, about um, the, the importance of the the collector and the, the historian and the, the and edu- educational institutions like yours that try to preserve these things? Yeah, um, my mentor who taught me everything I know, he's been a projectionist for about 50 years. He has, through collecting film, actually contributed to a lot of, you know, lost silent or early sound films. And I've actually seen, 
you know, some elements that he's contributed to restorations and then seeing them actually presented to an audience, which is really incredible um, to follow and see that through. There's also a book I would love to recommend to people called A Thousand Cuts. It's actually all about film collectors who, you know, have contributed to restorations or lost films or, you know, unfortunately I haven't had that moment in my life where I have a lost film on 16, but, you know, maybe someday. But yeah, there's a lot of cases of, especially in the early days when they were doing a lot of um, mail order, like mailing out prints to people that they would rent, or sometimes they would accidentally keep them <laughs> past their their due date, and then decades later, they've you know contributed to a restoration. Or people said, "Wow, we've never actually been able to find that film before." You know, it was lost to history, and this collector who just happened to keep something past the due date now has this only copy of this film, you know, and I think that happened with, with a few um, Lon Chaney senior films, some of the silent films that he did that Mm. they were rented out on 16 back in the twenties or thirties. And now they're accessible to everyone because this one collector had the only copy. Mm. There's There's so many good stories out there of these films that were sort of, Found like we the other day we watched um, uh, Joan of Arc, The Passion of Joan of Arc, and they found oh, yeah. it in a the the sort of best the most sort of uh, authentic copy was found in a psychiatric institution in Norway or Sweden one or the other, and mm-hmm. um, and then ages ago Autumn and I, um, David and I went to see um, the uh, Napoleon what's his name is Napoleon. Abel Gantz's Napoleon, Napoleon, yeah. And um, Kevin Brownlow, who's the sort of man behind the sort of restoration of that, has sort of tracked bits down in archives in Argentina and all sorts of New Zealand and sort of really just like a reel here, a reel there. He made it his life work to patch this thing back together from so many different sources, but it all started when he was a boy and he just got a little, what was it, a nine and a half millimeter sort oh, of a yeah. uh, little sort of reduction print that, that he'd found uh, from a dealer and he bought it and took it home. And then he just became completely obsessed with uh, with saving this film and tracking it down and getting all the bits and mm. putting it back together. And uh, it's an amazing story. And yeah, with Jonathan, I went to see it down in the South Bank at the National Theatre and they had a big orchestra, Carl Davis conducting, oh, wow. and it was... It, it was, was quite, quite one an amazing of the most, day. Well, probably the most extraordinary yeah. cinema, cinematic experience. It's because wow. it sort of finishes, it, it's got this, you know, because those old black and white films were in a little square box sort of screen. Yeah. But then it opened, the last sort of reel opens up, you've got two other reels, like we've got three cameras, so you've got the middle box and then oh, two yeah. of the, just, I mean, some of the techniques it was like watching sort of MTV or something. It was so <laughs> sort of experimental and it was yeah. just absolutely brilliant. Really, really good. Yeah, if there's never <laughs> anything lost, you know, a lot of collectors, whether intentional or not, are keepers of history. Yeah. No. Yeah, I think that's it. Well, yeah, I'm very glad cuts. that you. Yeah, yeah, a thousand cuts. I'm glad you brought that up because just a few weeks ago, I actually got called for jury service. 
And uh, that was, I, I don't know if, if you've ever done jury service, at least I in have. the UK, you spend a great deal of time sitting around waiting. That's kind yep. of what jury service is, is mainly about. And actually, A Thousand Cuts is is the book that I read whilst I was sitting around for many, many hours waiting. Oh, really? How funny. Yeah. Uh, and it is really excellent, really terrific. Uh, lots of great stories about these the, the sort of shady underworld characters who used to hoard uh, film film reels in their basements and stuff when they weren't supposed to be and all the and yeah. how all the film studios came after them and everything to try and stop them uh and the stories about roddy mcdowell you just have to feel really bad for the poor man because he was this avid collector mm -hmm. of film and then he got raided and they just took it all off him just took it all away yeah. from him really? <laughs> my, uh, yeah. my mentor was around you know when that happened and the, the whole idea with roddy mcdowell who had a lot of tapes and a lot of film was that he was to be, he was used as the example, you know, this is what's oh, going to okay. happen to you if you are collecting these films illegal, illegally. Um, so poor Roddy. Yeah. He just happened to be the one that was the big exam. I mean, when you have a huge celebrity like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it was really sad. It was quite heartbreaking. You just, you know, I really felt for the guy being a collector myself, obviously. But you yeah. know, it, it's it would just be it would just be heartbreaking to just have all your stuff taken off you, you know. And and you know, to, but anyway, it's a it's a great book. So, um, listeners, we'll leave a link uh, in the show notes so that you can go and mm -hmm. search that out. And another, I just want to briefly mention a, a film that's really terrific that I discovered a few maybe about a year ago uh it's called dawson dawson city frozen time which is just an amazing uh film which is about uh the story of this cache of old silent films that they found buried in the permafrost up in uh, canada up in uh, where was it in the yukon somewhere yeah. or something i uh and uh it's an extraordinary story because this this uh, was a little town up north, which was kind of the last stop where they all the film prints got uh, sent there as the last cinema on the line. And so when, usually when they got there, they just basically never collected them and never took them back. So they ended up just ha having this huge, huge stockpile of uh, films that they just threw in a warehouse somewhere. And then eventually they used it, uh, they buried it under like an ice rink or something, didn't they? Uh, they they yeah. they just sort of, to get rid of them. They just sort of buried them in the ground and then paved over it and then built built a skating rink over top. Huh. And then many many years later in the seventies, they discovered because they dug it up for whatever reason and they discovered all these this treasure trove of all these old yeah. films, many of them that had been lost uh, for many years. Uh, uh, and it's an extraordinary film because it it's kind of part documentary and part kind of abstract sort yeah. of, uh, you know, where they show all these bits of decay film and little, just little scenes and snippets from all these things that they found. Uh, and it's just got this incredible hypnotic effect and it's really beautiful, uh, absolutely beautiful uh, film that uh, I would definitely urge anyone to uh, to go and see. Terrific. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I've never heard of, yeah. I've never heard of that, never heard of A Thousand Cuts, so I'm learning uh, a lot oh, thank you well jonathan you got some catching up to do yeah I definitely do. 
Uh, well, we'll put the links in the show notes so that you can get caught up. After yeah, the show. absolutely. <laughs> um, and on that note, I think, I mean, this is an amazing conversation and I, I probably could quite happily, Amelia, talk to you for hours and hours and hours about about films and about uh, the cinema. Me too. Uh, but I think, um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, but I think um, we uh, there's a, a couple, couple of films. films. Well. Yeah, we have okay. uh, we have some film swapping to do. Now we should just mention to listeners um, that uh, Amelia, uh, being in the United States, one of the films that uh, the one that Jonathan and I selected and put forward for the show tonight. Unfortunately, Amelia was unable to access it uh, at the moment. It isn't. It doesn't seem to be available in the United States to stream or anything. And unfortunately it hasn't been released. I'm hoping that that will change, but so far it hasn't been released on physical media at all. Uh, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about um, Amelia's choice first, and then we're going, going to talk about the, the second film. Uh, Jonathan and I have seen it and we're gonna talk about it, but because uh, of Amelia's experience as a projectionist and working with film and stuff, I'm absolutely sure that she can offer some uh, insightful comments and things to add to the conversation. So okay. um, what we're going to do is just take a very, very brief break. Uh, from the listener's point of view, it is literally going to be just a few seconds. Uh, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about our first film, which, uh, we, well, I'll tell you what, we'll just wait and we'll introduce it after after the break. So listeners, stay right there. Don't move your ears because we're coming right back. Thanks for listening to the Film Swap podcast. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Audible, and Google Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast catchers. If you like this podcast, please consider giving the show a rating or leaving a review. This helps other listeners find the show. Okay, and we are back. Hi. Hello. <laughs> hey, and we're back with Amelia Eichler, who is uh, the mistress of the real uh, uh, projectionist at uh, UCS. And uh, she's here today. Uh, we're going to talk about a film that she has recommended today uh, on our subject, our theme, which we've decided to call The Real Experience. Real being R-E-E-L. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> just to clarify that in case uh, uh, anyone thought it was uh, the real real. Or is that the real real? Is real, is real, R-E-A-L, would that be? What is real? What is real and what's real? Yeah. <laughs> we have no idea, but we're going to try and break that down tonight. So, Amelia, please uh, introduce uh, your your film tonight and tell us a little bit about it, if you may. Uh, uh, we try and avoid spoilers here, just to say, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, but you know, we try to avoid spoilers, but don't don't Not that worry hard. about it too much. We don't yeah. try that hard. We, we try a little. It's sort of inevitable, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I found out about this film for context from my mentor, who, I, like I said, he has been a projectionist for fifty years. He appropriately recommended me this film, uh, the smallest show on earth which is very fitting. It's a British film, so not a U.S. film. And it was made in 1957 and it's directed by Basil Dearden. So 
just a brief brief synopsis and I will try to avoid spoilers. Um, mm-hmm. It's about a young couple basically who inherit a debt-ridden old movie theater. It's this decrepit movie theater uh, appropriately nicknamed the Flea Pit. <laughs> and there are three eccentric senior citizens who work there who are kind of just stuck there in limbo waiting for someone to take over the theater and let them do their jobs that they're assigned to do. And of course I chose it because it's about film and it's about running a theater, which I've done before. And it has a projectionist in it who's played by Peter Sellers. He's very hysterical in this film. He's so good in this film. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And um, I have kind of a a love for decrepit movie, old movie houses. Mm -hmm. And so I love the idea of this young couple who are kind of these yuppies so to so to speak who just kind of stumble stumble upon this theater and they don't know what to do with it and i love that it obviously then in 1957 it was supposed to be funny because it was mostly like a silent they have a lot of dated technology you know they have an organ for silent films they're only running silent films you know the workers are senior citizens, so it's supposed to be, you know, oh, that's old. But to us, now that's really old as contemporary viewers. But it does let us explore the history of movie going and what practices were used and what it was actually like even in the silent days and also in the 50s to go see a movie and what that yeah. experience was like, which, you know, a lot of us, I'm sure, have not had that experience of seeing a short, a cartoon and a film all in one and having a, a film accompaniment and, you know, have ushers and at least I haven't. Um, and so I think it's a great look into movie going and I just love yeah. it. It's charming. I love it. Utterly charming. Utterly charming. And I'd never heard of it before. And I'm really glad you introduced it to uh, us or me. <laughs> because it's a absolute classic, got a great cast. I mean, the script is brilliant. I didn't realize the um, until after I sort of watched it and did a bit of research that the uh, or the the scriptwriter um, yeah. is William. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he is William uh, Rose. William Rose. Uh, he later went on to win a, an Oscar for I think Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And and he oh, also yeah, wrote yeah. the wrote the Lady Killers, which is you know absolute classic Ealing comedy. And basically, mm-hmm. it's a sort of Ealing comedy that wasn't actually made by Ealing because I think all the sort of I mean Peter Sellers made I think Ealing films. Certainly Basil Dearden, he was mm-hmm. renowned for his sort of Ealing films. But this is I think the their studio had closed by that stage, but they sort of the team carried on. Uh, yeah. Nobody, t- nobody told them somehow, and uh, yeah, th- and then of course the uh, the the main couple is played by uh, Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna, who went on to some great f- fame ten years later with Born Free, mm-hmm. um, and they were actually a real sort of couple as well. They were married to each other, and yeah, what a terrific movie. <laughs> mm. David, you, uh, well, yeah, I was the same. I'd not seen it before. I, I'd kind of heard about it before, um, but I'd never really had a chance to see it. So I was really glad uh, when you suggested it. And 
uh, I uh, just really loved it. It's an incredibly charming film, just uh, really delightful. And as you say, Peter Sellers, um, absolutely brilliant, and he's very funny. I mean, Peter Sellers, he's one of those, um, you know, sometimes in his later films, he could kind of like, um, you know, um, I don't know, I guess kind of over overdo it or over egg it a little bit. But I think yeah. in this one, he's just absolutely pitch perfect. He's very funny, obviously playing someone playing much older than he actually was at the time, I would think. Yeah. Uh, mm. And uh, and he's just absolutely brilliant. He brings a just a he's very funny, but he brings a, just that nice little uh, undercurrent of kind of pathos to it. And yeah. um, and I love that that beautiful scene. Uh, which they don't uh, overdo it at all. It's just a nice brief little moment when the when the couple comes in and finds uh, the the old employees uh, sort of playing an old film on the screen, and mm. and uh, Martha Rutherford is sitting at the piano, sort of playing along to it. And um, Peter Sellers gets a bit emotional. He's being a bit sentimental, and that's just a really really beautiful uh, moment that kind of captures that that kind of nostalgia. Yeah and the and that feel for that old sort of the silent era of film and i i think it's just it was really beautiful yeah i to um, me that that bit was the because it's all funny mostly yeah. funny it's sort of light yeah. and then when they watch this silent film the whole mood of the film sort of shifts into a completely different gear yeah. and it becomes you know genuinely affecting and moving and especially it's making a comment about the power of silent cinema as well, um, and then it goes back to its sort of <laughs> goes back to being funny again. I mean, it's a terrific funny film, and it does say sort of you know serious things as well. But that that was sort of sort of strange, slightly out of place uh, scene in a way, or well, perhaps not out of place, but it was um, different to the rest of the movie. I felt. Mm. Yeah, the difference in generations, you know, with the young couple coming in. And then kind of these senior citizens who are stuck essentially in the past and how to kind of bridge that uh, throughout the film, which is really beautiful, I think. Yeah. One thing I also really liked about it was the um, cinema itself, uh, which was all done in the studio. I mean, you know, it was was not a real cinema. It wasn't uh, the location they went to. It was sort of uh, made in the studio. But it's the, the the set designers obviously really went to town. They really had fun oh, because yeah. it looks incredible. <laughs> Absolutely it hilarious. does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, Amelia. I've been in cinemas like just like that. <laughs> that were literally just crumbling around you, and the seats were sort of like all splintery and falling apart, and the, your feet stick to the floor and all that kind of thing. So it really just brought that that kind of memory home as well. Yeah. No, yeah, I, really I love wish that. it were a real cinema. Oh, sorry, I'm going to say again. I wish it were a real cinema that yes. I could go visit. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love the the film that, like you say, that this couple are kind of like they're they're obviously a more affluent uh, yeah. couple, and they they when they get the letter saying that they've inherited this cinema, they're super excited because they just think, oh, it'll be worth some money, and we can sell it and have have some money and that's kind of their principal sort of motivation yeah. and then when they go down there they they get the the cinema running again and start it working again but only so that they can uh, increase the value to try and trick this uh, competitor across the road who has a big 
fancy new shiny grand cinema this giant palace across the way and uh, mm -hmm. they're trying to trick him to paying more money for the cinema to buy it up so they're trying to uh, uh make it look like the cinema's a going concern again and that it's the you know going to be popular and a good uh, viable business but then as the film progresses in that moment that we talked about that when they uh, see the old uh, people sort of reliving their nostalgia there that's kind yeah. of the kind of turning point where they start mm -hmm. to feel more differently about it and st stop thinking of it just as a business uh, sort of venture or a way of making some money and they start to see the value in it and the and start to, to feel for the for the employees and and start to actually feel like they want the cinema to be successful and to work out. So and, no. uh, I do, there's one other scene where that always comes to mind when I think of this film where they start doing gimmicky things in the theater where yes. there's that they're running the film and then there's a desert scene in the yes. film and they turn off the, the air or the fans yeah. and people are sweating. And all of a sudden they have this woman coming out with drinks <laughs> that they, moviegoers can buy and everyone's sweating. Yeah. And I, I just thought it was funny because in that, in the fifties, a lot of gimmicks were, ha were having to be used That's true. to try to compete with television yeah. And so I just like that kind of play with yeah. that in the film. Yeah, very sort of ba the basic end, whereas, you know, the sort of the studios were doing 3D and they were just turning up mm -hmm. the central heating. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. Uh, the, the bit with the train, uh, I thought was quite great. That they, they have the there's a train line running right behind the cinema, and every time it goes by, the cinema always really shakes, and they have to kind of hold the projector together so it doesn't disintegrate. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's interesting that every time the train goes by, it's always just at the right moment yes. so that it actually adds to the film. Like yeah. it'll be a bit when there's a train on screen, or there'll be thundering horse hooves going by and then the whole cinema starts to shake and it's yeah. like a, just a really really funny gag that that uh, runs through it a couple of times and it's brilliant and one time when that's happening they go in and they see peter sellers basically wrapped around the projector <laughs> to stop it from falling apart essentially <laughs> which is just yeah. perfect peter sellers sort of moment yeah just really <laughs> wonderful yeah amelia those bits uh, when when uh, there there's a, a moment when the the owner of the cinema has to take matters in his own hand and he has to run the project projectors himself uh because uh um the the peter sellers character is indisposed shall we say uh, so he has to do it himself. And then we have this wonderful scene where he has all these mishaps and the film's running upside down or backwards, oh, yeah. or he's put the wrong reel on or all these different things happen in your experience as a projectionist. Are these, was this a moment that you could uh, relate to at all? I mean, obviously it was exaggerated for comic effect, but can you uh, relate any kind of experiences like that where you've had projection mishaps? Well, we had, um, I mean, it, this, thankfully, one of these wasn't thankfully in front of an audience, but we were, we got a 16 project, 16 millimeter projector that was kind of just installed and put together and it was new. 
and we had some film that was double perforations, so there wasn't a soundtrack. So there wasn't, you know, it was difficult for us to orient which way we should be threading the film. And it was also a European projector. So the way that we would normally thread it, it was the opposite, which we also didn't know. And so not only did we not know which way the reel was supposed to be facing because there was no soundtrack, there it was also the opposite from a normal American projector. And so we were threading some 16 and all of a sudden there was this skiing scene, but the skier was going backwards and it was also <laughs> upside down. Oh my and I was like, yeah, I don't think that's right. Um, I don't think this is an experimental film. I think, you know, I think maybe this is our fault. Um, and I've also had pieces of a projector come off during a screening in front of an audience and I'm pacing in the booth trying to figure out how to fix it or am I going to have to offer everyone a refund um so I I related a bit to that scene yeah oh gosh brilliant (laughs) well yeah it was it's it's a pretty fun moment I I actually watched it with one of my boys and he just like he loved that he was he was in stitches yeah, oh, I love that during that during that moment. So it's it's pretty pretty terrific, pretty fun film. I remember meeting somebody who used to either lived in Cambridge um, or went to Cambridge University. And anyway, there was a cinema. Mm-hmm. I think maybe still be there called the Cambridge Arts Cinema. And uh, they said there was, they used to go regularly to see films there. And there was this one sort of patron who um, basically, if the film wasn't exactly in focus, they go. Mm-hmm. Until the projectionist basically got it in focus. <laughs> Just brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, that's great. Well, was there anything else that we wanted to talk about the smallest show on earth? Oh, it's one little thing. Uh, the name of the film obviously comes from, it's like a sort of uh, joke on the biggest show on earth which Mm -hmm. is in the news at the moment because uh, Steven Spielberg, um, that was the film he went to see uh, back with his dad in the early 50s, um, which makes it into The Fablemans. Um, And it's also the film that won the Oscar uh, that High Noon lost out to in our our Oscars episode. So anyway... That's a little bit of trivia yeah. for you. Yes, brilliant. I guess this film would have only come out like sort of what five or six years after the greatest show on earth. So I guess the yeah the the, the title is just meant to be a little play on on that as well, yeah. isn't it? So yeah, right. yeah. It's I can't quite find this on online anywhere, but if I remember, there was, and I don't know if it has to do with you know, an, an American title, or I think this film also goes by another title, which confused yeah. me a bit at first, but I remember, I can't quite find it, of course, now that I'm the looking. Big but... Time Operators, apparently. Yeah. It, was, it yeah. was originally distributed in the U.S. under that title, Big Time Operators. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's brilliant. This um, is yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about the cast? There's Margaret Rutherford, who's brilliant as the old lady, wasn't so she? Funny. I love those little moments when they go to them and they, they, they obviously bicker her character and Peter Sellers. 
and they bicker a lot. But then when um, when the owners come to them and say, well, what what do you want me to do? Do you want me to fire them? And they go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <can't do> that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, uh, it's brilliant. It was, I love it. It's just a lovely film. Just, um, and it's not, it's very short as well, wasn't it? I think that was one thing about it. It was like, um, yeah. cause we've had, we've talked about quite a, a few quite long films recently. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I know, um, Thank you. um, we were, we, uh, when I mentioned to Jonathan, it was only like about 80 minutes long. I know there was a, this great sense of relief because last <laughs> week we talked about Heaven's Gate, which was sort of like four oh, hours. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like uh, so that's brilliant yeah um, um one other one last thing actually sure so sure. i think um the because the director basil dearden or basil dearden mm-hmm. um he uh so i think sort of he had a bit of a bad rep uh, i believe um and for instance uh who was it that said yeah david thompson didn't like him and the sort of the you know very esteemed film critic, and I've got this book, uh, Ealing Studios here by Charles Barr. I don't know if okay. you've uh, heard of that, but it's like the sort of the definitive book on Ealing, I think, pretty much. Anyway, he it's a sort of, sort of second edition, and he has a little uh, piece at the end about the director, basically saying, first in the first edition, I was very rude about Basil Dearden, um, but now actually on consideration, I think he's pretty good <laughs> and he's got this little sort of essay on the the virtues of basil did and why he's actually you should you know give him more credit so yeah right. so why didn't he like him in the first place then oh i i'm not sure i thought oh, like okay. yeah oh. well that's interesting yeah well, at least he changed his mind which yeah. is the main thing exactly it's, it's nice yeah. to think in an age when everyone is so rigid in their thinking, it's nice to think that people could be persuaded about something. Very true. <laughs> so it's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, Amelia, was there any um, uh, other, anything else you wanted to comment on, on the small show on Earth? No, it's, you know, I'm s- surprised. And obviously there's a lot of overlooked films or, you know, it's, Again, with streaming, right? As we said, a lot of titles are unknown to people, or I haven't heard really anyone talk about this film before. Mm. And a lot of even people who are film projectionists, I've never heard them mention, or if I do mention it to them, it's, oh, I'd never heard of that film. So I hope that, you know, some of the listeners do actually take time to watch it because it is such a hidden gem as people say Absolutely. um it's just it's such a good time and it's so charming so i really do hope that um people give it a chance definitely a terrific choice yeah absolutely yeah it was a great choice and thank you very much amelia for bringing it to our attention because neither of us had seen it before and that that's really great and uh hopefully some listeners out there will uh take the plunge um, in the United States, how did you access it? Just so, if people are interested in checking it out, how how could they how could they find it? <clears throat> so when I watched it, and I don't know if this is accessible to everyone, but PBS dot org, um, that's a a station here, uh, has it for free. So right. if you just type in this the smallest show on earth. Uh, it's the first 
result. And so that's how I watched it. And it's also on daily motion as well. Oh, daily um, motions. Yeah, very good. Sometimes they have a lot of public domain things and stuff on there. That That's a great resource as well. Yeah, um, so that's how I watched it. Okay, brilliant. So, well, yeah, well, free. You can't get any better than that. You can't argue with that. Yeah. So it's definitely yeah. worth going to check out. And, Jono, how did you watch it here in the UK? Uh, I watched it on Amazon Prime. Okay. I, paid, I rented it. I rented it. I think it was about £2.50. All um, right. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was okay. quite easy. Actually, fairly easy to get. Well, it is also, I can hold this up for the people who are watching the video version of the show. There is a Blu ray available from Network Video. Uh, which mm-hmm. I ended up getting because I looked the same as Jonathan. I was just going to rent it on Amazon Prime. But when I looked on Amazon, the Blu-ray was pretty much the same price or maybe like, you know, about maybe a quid or something more. So yeah. I said, well, I'll just I'll just buy a copy and then I'll be able to Smart watch it more thinking. than once and have it. Um, we got some sad news actually over the last week and Network Video, which is the, the label that released this and have uh, released a lot of really classic British uh, film and television shows. They've actually gone into receivership, uh, oh, which man. was a bit of bad news uh, over the last couple of weeks because they are quite a quite a great label uh, just for putting out a lot of obscure stuff. But I guess maybe that's partly why they've run into some troubles because uh, there's not as much of a market nowadays. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think if people would be interested, it is a great Blu-ray. It's very, very good transfer. And they've got a few little bits and pieces as extra sort of, uh, oh, nice. uh, you know, kind of bonus materials on it and things as well. So if if you're interested in getting a copy of that, it's not very expensive. Uh, and if you, uh, but you might want to hurry because obviously if networks go on, presumably those are going to dry up. Um, mm, yeah. that's so uh well whatever however listeners choose choose to find it um please do because it's a great film it's terrific yeah um what we're going to do now is we're going to just take another brief little break so listeners uh just uh please sit right where you are because we're only going to be going for a few seconds uh, and when we come back we're going to talk about our second film uh, uh zanimo's uh, one second Uh, a more recent film uh, that comes from uh, China. So uh, in just one moment, we will be back. Stay tuned. You can follow the Film Swap on social media. We're on Twitter and TikTok at FilmSwapUK, on Instagram at FilmSwapMedia, and on YouTube at FilmSwap underscore podcast, and at Facebook at FilmSwap the podcast. All right, and listeners, we're back. Welcome back to FilmSwap, and uh, with our very, very special guest, Amelia Eichler, who's uh, joining us from Los Angeles in the United States. Um our second film today, uh, I think I'll let Jonathan introduce this, just mainly because I've been just talking a lot, or at least I feel like mm-hmm. I have been. <laughs> um, so I'm going to let him introduce our second film, which is called One Second. Yes, it's called One Second, and it's directed by Zhang Yimou. Uh, please excuse my appalling um, uh, pronunciation. And he is, I would say, probably the most... Uh, sort of the biggest name in sort of Chinese cinema that I've, I mean, from my limited knowledge of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he has his films. In, I've, basically, uh, I've seen four of his. I think now I've seen four of his films. Uh, in the eighties, he made a film called Red Sorghum, mm-hmm. um, which is set during the sort of Japanese invasion of China in the thirties or forties. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the nineties, he made a great film called Raid, Raise High the Red Lantern. Um, yeah. And then. Brilliant. Really good film as well. And then in the 2000s, uh, Red, Red, Raised High the Red Lantern, I think it's sort of in the sort of 16th, 16th, 17th century, sort of a costume drama. And then um, the uh, in the 2000s, he made, uh, around the time of Crouching Tiger, uh, Hidden Dragon, he made a film called, um, what was it called? Uh, House of Flying Daggers. Thank you very much. House of Flying Daggers yeah. and... Also, Hero, both of which are yeah. terrific with, movies. With Jet Li, yes. Yeah, with Jet Li, terrific. which are sort of wuxia or sort of uh, kung fu movies, basically. Um, and then uh, this film, which is interesting. It's a great film about cinema, which we will talk about in a moment. But part of the thing that's interesting about it is that it's based on a novel um, and uh, by a Chinese-American novelist. Uh, called it's called the Criminal Lu Yanxi by Galing Yan, um, and he'd actually made another film based on the same book. So I think it might be quite a sort of thick book. Unfortunately, it hasn't come out in English yet. Um, <clears throat> I looked for it, but <coughs> he, he, one of his other films from I think 2012 called Coming Home is another story from this sort of uh, book, and um, so. Yeah, but it's a terrific movie. What do you What, what do you think, David? <laughs> well, um, I know we have Amelia at a bit of a disadvantage here because she hasn't seen it. So yes. I, I guess I can just go over briefly, uh, kind of give you a quick summary of the plot. Yeah. Uh, the film, I think, is set in the early 70s. And it's kind of just during the period, I guess, in China, what they call the Cultural Revolution. And uh, it, it is to do with a man who is uh, basically a prisoner. He's been put in uh, into a, like a Labor like camp. a work camp, a prison camp uh, for fighting. He got into a fight with a like a, a military guard or something, and and hit them, and so he's ended up uh, going to prison. Uh, but what he does is he escapes uh, because he is told by another inmate who saw a newsreel in the cinema that has uh, his daughter in it. So he mm-hmm. escapes from the work camp in order that he can go and see this film that's got his daughter in it. So then what happens is we have these beautiful landscapes of him uh, basically trudging through what's essentially a desert region yep. uh, to go to this small town to catch this newsreel uh, that which is being which basically they they basically bundle these prints of uh, you know a program of films together and then go from uh, town to town uh, and show it in the local cinema there uh, to great fanfare and everything because I guess it's it's, it's sort of a only a sporadic community event when these films show up and they show them in the cinema so uh he misses the the screening he doesn't get to the um to the town in time but then he learns that the film is being shown in the next town down the road uh but as he's preparing to uh to leave to go there 
uh, he sees a young girl steal one of the canisters of film from the courier's bike and run off with it. And then he, of course, chases after her uh, and catches her. And then what uh, ensues is uh, the, the the film is predominantly about the relationship that, that develops between this man and this, what turns out to be this young orphan girl who uh, is uh, trying to steal film prints, but for a completely different reason to uh, the, than what his interest is. But the two of them uh, form this unlikely sort of friendship and he goes to this uh, town or village, uh, which is the next one along, uh, to see this film. But what happens is, in, in while the film is being transported from one town to the next, uh, there is some sort of an accident. I think uh, the courier's bike breaks down, and so the, the films are bundled onto somebody's uh, cart, like horse and cart. Uh, and one of them breaks open, and the film ends up getting dragged across the... <laughs> The, the sort of the dirt the gravel roads all the way to the village. So then we have this wonderful, wonderful uh, time with this this uh, amazing character in the film who they call Mr. Movie in the yeah, town. Yeah, he's the projectionist. He's the projectionist in the town. So much like yourself, Amelia, he is the he runs the town cinema. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. whenever one of these film programs shows up and he can show it, there, there's great ballyhoo and excitement in the village because they're showing a film. Uh, and so he he holds a position in this town of great authority and respect. Uh -huh. uh, and he and he's, he's such a wonderful character because he's he's kind of, you know, he, he has a little bit of an ego and he's kind of like a bit, he's got a bit of that alpha male, you know, I'm mm -hmm. uh, kind of cock of the walk of the town because he holds such an important esteemed position in the in this village. Uh, but then he also, uh, uh, you know, has uh, responsibilities uh, in terms of uh, making sure that the films are, are safe and they get mm -hmm. uh, sent on to the next place. So he's, he's, he's in a bit of a tricky situation. So they have this wonderful, wonderful scene where he uh, gets the entire town, everybody jumps in and gets involved in cleaning the film and and oh, getting it ready to be projected because at first he's kind of like oh that's it the film's off we can't do it because it's been trashed but then everyone's like oh no we can't we're not gonna have a film but then he goes okay i'll tell you what well we're gonna save this we're gonna do this and then he starts ordering people around saying okay you go and get some get some pot so we can distill some water and you uh, you know, you guys get some cleaning wool so we can do this. And everybody, you go and hang some things up here. And it becomes this big, huge sort of production. It's absolutely wonderful how they how they uh, slowly clean this film and, and get it back wound onto reels and stuff under this man's direction. Yeah. And uh, it's absolutely wonderful. And, and what it does, too, is it really shows the kind of the fragility of it and, and mm -hmm. how the, the film, you know... Um, uh, you know, how fragile film, you know, reels, especially back in those times were. Uh, and it also just shows this wonderful sense of community and the fact yeah. that this whole community comes together for this really important event and how important it all is to them uh, and how they all muck in and support and and work together to get this thing sorted out. So it's it's absolutely wonderful, really beautiful. Uh, and then it's all uh, underlines this story between this escaped uh, convict and this uh, uh, orphan girl. 
uh, who uh, uh, form this uh, unlikely friendship. And we learn mm-hmm. a bit more about why uh, why the man is there in the town and Mr. Movie gets involved in this. And we see a little bit from him about his uh, both his, his authoritarianism, but also his mm-hmm. compassion as well. Uh, and how he uh, deals with this situation. So uh, I won't go any further because obviously I don't want to spoil the film for people who haven't seen it yet, including yourself. Um, But um, I I absolutely loved it. And when we were talking, uh, Jonathan and myself, about the theme for the film, about talking about the cinematic experience and the the, the kind of the communal aspect of film going, and uh, this was the film that immediately jumped uh, to my head is something I'd seen recently. It's only, well, it's a 2020 film. So it, it yeah. came out, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I guess, during the, during the pandemic and things, November of 2020. Yeah. So, um, uh, it's absolutely just wonderful, beautifully shot, uh, and, um, uh, beautifully told. And I, I think it's just absolutely terrific, terrific film. Yeah. Well, a few things that, uh, come to mind is one is that it's apparently shot in Dunhuang, which is region of China, where they found uh, the, these Buddhist caves, very famous mm-hmm. Buddhist caves, because it's on the Silk Route going to sort of India. And they mm-hmm. found, I think in the early 20th century, behind a sort of false wall, like huge piles of scripture. And mm-hmm. there's an international project called the Dunhuang Project, which is all these sort of universities which have these things. And they're trying to sort of decipher them, still going through all these piles and piles of uh, scriptures anyway but it's it's just a very beautiful landscape where he, he filmed it um but w- one of the things that yeah the cleaning scene uh this is really it's very sort of ingenious the way he does it mm-hmm. and it's also lovely it's got a lovely humor to it as well and but it's also sort of got an almost ritualistic sort of feel to it and they're sort of the the, the film is almost like a sort of sacred object perhaps yeah. sort of perhaps in the way that the scriptures were in the caves nearby there, but uh, anyway, actually, mm-hmm. come to think of it. Um, but one thing that this film shares, or two things that this film shares in common with uh, your choice, is one mm-hmm. is that the audience uh, watching it, because one of the great things in um, The Smaller Show on Earth is the audience are extremely physical, incredibly engaged with the movies, aren't they? Those scenes of the sort of, the camera sort of showing the audience responding to the movies and this one they're all it's more i guess they're more wrapped and uh, sort of just but it's uh, really uh, great and then the other thing that's really um that has a sort of similarity is inside the projection booth and uh, they've got a very another really clapped out old uh, projection uh, you know projector uh, like like in um, the smaller show on earth and um, somebody who basically knows it's like I guess it's one of those machines that only the owner or the sort of caretaker of it knows how to work it yeah. uh, um, like a sort of I remember reading some, some something about some somebody trying to getting on a bicycle and it was a postman's bicycle and only that postman could ride it and uh, they said so they got on it and they found that it was completely useless but it was it's sort of a bit <laughs> A bit like that. Um, yeah, it's uh, really uh, uh, terrific. Oh, yes, another thing that occurred to me is that in Hero, especially, there's um, uh, Zhang Yimou uh, has uh, uses lots of. Have you seen Hero? 
Terrific. Yeah. Terrific movie. You know, he's got, he's very, um, uh, sort of, there's a very uh, sort of pronounced color palette, isn't there? Sort of various scenes mm -hmm. have different colors. And so this one also, like the, there's, there's a sort of very, the color plays a big sort of part in it. And then uh, towards the end, the sort of colors change when there's a sort of change in the, basically a change in the regime. Uh, when uh, it's not giving anything away, the Cultural Revolution does come to an end, and then the sort of colours change as well, and it mm -hmm. goes from a very sort of washed out, sort of sandy look to uh, sort of a bit bolder colours. Um, yeah, anyway, that's my little <laughs> tuppence worth, basically. Well, and again, I, I, I don't want to give away the ending for, for anyone, but it is really beautifully poetic, isn't it, uh, Jonathan? The way that it yeah. ties in, because of the the key plot point of this of the film is that this man who, who's been estranged from his family and from his daughter because he's been sent to prison, uh, and this this the reason why the film's called One Second is because there is this one second of his daughter in this newsreel yeah. and this footage is mm -hmm. the center point for him. Uh, as just a, a way of, of having a memory and an image uh, of of, uh, of his past and his, you know, his regrets for his loss. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the film, there, there there's a really poignant and beautiful sort of metaphor for just how fragile in terms of some of the things we talked about, about a film as a, as history and as preserving our memories and our culture and our heritage and all those things, but how also how fragile it is as a, um, uh, you know, and how important it is to try and preserve it and protect it because it is so fleeting and, and so easy to lose that. And yeah. I think um, that is another key thing in this film that really be beautifully kind of, um, says that about just how important it is to preserve our culture and 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 these things and i think it's it's really really beautiful um really beautiful film um yeah and i really loved it a lot so i'm really keen uh, for anyone who's listening out there and, and and amelia when you get a chance to check it out because it's such a such a great uh, such a great thing yeah, I really hope I can access it at some point. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know the status of it getting released on disc because yeah. a lot of, you know, newer films don't necessarily sometimes have yeah. a disc release, but I really hope that the U.S. rights can, like, get figured out so that more people can watch it because it sounds mm. so beautiful mm. and so up my alley. But it, it is, it's quite interesting when we talk about the availability things in like newer films that, that some films are quite literally not being released on any, in any kind of physical format now. I mean, I would hope because Zhang Yimou is quite a, a prominent director um, mm -hmm. that, that and, and this is such a good film that hopefully somebody out there will pick it up at some point and, and, uh, and release it on a Blu-ray or something because uh, I would certainly be uh, first in line to get a copy of it because I really like it a lot. Mm. Um, but uh, here in the UK, um, uh, it's available on Mubi, the streaming service. And I think it's also available as a rental on Amazon Prime. So yes. is that how you watched it, Jonathan? 
Funnily enough, when I went into Amazon Prime, it said you've got to sign up for a movie and uh, watch it through movie. But then I went into the sort of home page of the sort of uh, smart TV and put in the name of it. And then it took me into Amazon Prime, but not having to sign up uh, to movie and just watching it sort of as an individual discrete film. So it's a bit weird. So there you go. So it's a very complex situation, (laughs) folks, for seeing this film for some reason. But... uh, But it's definitely worth the effort if you go out and uh, try and see it because it's it's really beautiful and um, uh, quite a moving piece of piece of work and really entertaining yeah. and and uh, has lots of really funny moments and yeah. and things as well. So it, it's um, it's good stuff. So go definitely. out and find it. Yeah. <laughs> so is there any uh, last uh, things you wanted to say, uh, Jono, about one second? No, good film. And very, very, a good one to watch uh, with the smaller show on Earth. A good pair, they are. Yeah, they it does sound like a perfect pair. Very much so. They have a lot of very common threads that run through them. And uh, and it's kind of what we were going for today is that we wanted to celebrate the actual cinema going experience and film as a medium and uh, and how important it is and um, hopefully it won't hopefully it'll be like vinyl that maybe one day all of a sudden people will will suddenly uh, wake up and go hey actually this is pretty cool so maybe yeah. we should uh, we should go back and have another go at this uh, so you know we'll see <laughs> we shall see we, we shall see, see. um so Amelia, thank you so much mm-hmm. for joining us tonight. You've been absolutely awesome. Thank and, you very much. Uh, and uh, I know we had a, a few issues uh, with because of the time zone differences and stuff. We had a little some sort of um, jostling about to try and get the a, a good uh, time when we could all sit down together and, and have a chat. But I'm glad yeah. uh, we've we've uh, we've uh, done that, and it's been really great having you. And. Uh, is there any uh, anything you want to give a little shout out to, or anything that you could draw you, you want to draw some attention to um, while, while uh, you're here on the show? Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more about projection or film handling and like the basics, I would recommend people check out Sprocket School, hmm. and they're you know a nonprofit website that has all kind of really in-depth detailed information about projectors and projecting and film handling and different kinds of film prints and soundtracks. And so all the little technical things that maybe most people aren't familiar with, I think that's a good source for people who are maybe interested in learning about physical film and don't quite know where to start. You know, I often refer to it as well sometimes when I'm working just as a good like reference. So I would definitely recommend that website. And um, yeah, I definitely would love if people, you know, had any questions about projection or maybe they're trying to figure out how to befriend a projectionist or maybe learn how to project. You know, you can reach out to me on Twitter. Um, my username is Sleepy Serenade. Uh, or you could type in Mistress of the Real and all that'll also come up and yeah, just feel free to reach out to me if you want to talk about film at all and have any questions. You know, I'll try my best to point you towards resources like Sprocket School um, or other resources. And uh, yeah, I just love talking about film. So, oh, brilliant! And we'll we'll definitely include some uh, links and things in the show notes as well, uh, so you can uh, uh, s- seek out uh, uh, 
Amelia, because it's been absolutely awesome talking to you. And uh, hopefully, maybe you'll come back again and have another chat oh, with us another time. Cool. Yeah, because uh, I'm sure there's millions of great films out there that we could talk about. So uh, um, we definitely love to have you back another time. Definitely. I'll be back. <laughs> great, fantastic. Great. All right. Well, thanks again, Amelia. And thank you, Jonathan. And uh, thank you you listeners for joining us today. Um, Just a little bit uh, of housekeeping, too. I would just mention that uh, because of uh, various holidays and other personal commitments and things, uh, the film swap factoids have uh, been, we've gone a little bit quiet on that front over the last couple of weeks. But I just want to assure you factoid fans out there, that Film Swap Factoids will be back over the next couple of weeks. Uh, So uh, uh, you might want to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss out. But we also uh, eventually push them out on uh, the other platforms, TikTok and Facebook and all that as well. So wherever you uh, happen to do your social media-ness, by all means, uh, uh, look us up uh, because we're out there. Um, causing trouble of some kind or another. <laughs> oh, and I wanted to do a quick shout out as well. If anyone saw our silly uh, little skit with the three old ladies, I just wanted to give a shout out to my great friends, uh, Farrah Shaw, Sarah Scarborough, and Sarah McQuaid, who are, are some really great, talented actresses who I've been very lucky and fortunate enough to tread the boards with them a few times uh, here in the UK. And uh, they were. Uh, very uh, lovely sports and came out and uh, helped me out putting that little uh, video together. So I just wanted to give a little shout out to them because they're totally awesome. (laughs) And I just wanted to give them a shout out. So, uh, all right. Well, on that note, then I'm going to say goodbye and uh, listeners, thanks for joining us today. And uh, we will see you again in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for more surprises and surprises and watch great films. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye for now. Cheers. Bye. Oh, that suspense these nerdy middle-aged men get up to. Oh. Oh. Oh.